From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Benta Berkland, your host this week, here with my colleagues Andrew Kenny and a special guest, our editor, Megan Verlee. Thank you. I really wanted to be on this episode. It's my favorite nerdy topic. So I want to add that we are recording this podcast on the morning of Thursday, October 8th. So things may have shifted by the time you're listening. And I think for a lot of people, it feels like this election season will never end. But each day we are getting closer to that finish line. Are you sure? <laughs> yes. And we are at a big milestone. Ballots will be arriving in the mail to Coloradans any day now. Yeah, I mean, and we've already had people receive their blue books, 89 pages just to get through the statewide ballot measures, not even counting the judicial retention. That is a uh, (laughs) dictionary of a book. I have one next to me here. I'm not sure you can hear me flapping it. I assume you've read the whole thing already. (laughs) Cover to cover, couldn't put it down. (laughs) And I I do think for a lot of voters, that informational guide, I mean, they they say that they're going to look at it and it's... It's pretty important to their how they decide what yeah. they vote on. I think the arrival of these blue books is really the ultimate signal in Colorado that election season is really here. And I noticed last week, I saw a tweet from Patricia Cameron down in Colorado Springs area that really summed it up. And it was it kind of made me chuckle. And I made her record it. She said, So I got my voter ballot guide in the mail today. And it's as long as Anna Karenina. You know, for reference, Anna Karenina is more than 800 pages. Yeah, not quite as long, but, but I probably, get the point. a lot more interesting. Yes, and a little more dramatic. <laughs> so you we're hearing a lot nationally and in Colorado about the presidential race, obviously, and then there's a U.S. Senate race here. But we have a wide slate of other issues people will be deciding this year. These are statewide ballot initiatives. So this is one reason I'm really glad I'm hosting this week. I'm going to give you two a a very quick little pop quiz, and extremely quick. I'm going to throw out a name, and you tell me which ballot initiative this is. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Andy, Proposition 115. Is that Wolves? I I know this one. That one's the 22-week abortion ban. Yes. Ha! Um... Megan, Proposition 116. I have no idea. Income tax cut. Yes. Wow. Great, we know each other. You guys are a good little team. Okay, final one, Proposition EE. Oh, that's the tobacco and vaping products tax. Yes. See? You guys knocked it out of the park, right? So (laughs) One for three ain't bad. Before we dive into all those details, we're going to look at kind of what is a ballot measure, because ballot initiatives were actually the topic of the very first episode of Purplish. Um, oh, my God, that was a long time ago. <laughs> I know. And there's something that's they've really shaped the laws and the government in our state. Um, and they've been around for 110 years. Wow. This was part of the progressive movement. There was a whole slate of state lawmakers who ran on increasing direct democracy in the state. Because mm. you think about it, how do you get the the initiative power? It, it takes power away from lawmakers, gives it to the citizens. Normally, lawmakers don't like to do that. Right. But it was an actual movement. So in 1910, uh, a whole bunch of these guys got elected. They called a special session and put a, a measure out to the public that not only created initiatives, but it also gave people the power to try try to recall a bill through the ballot, Hmm. which we're seeing used this year. It's a very rare power um, and created the recall power for public officials. So so people voted to give themselves the power to vote 
on more stuff. Exactly. And it's been used a lot since then. I mean, it's happened. It happens throughout the country, but more Western states have statewide ballot initiatives. And it's been interesting to see some things become law that Colorado was on the forefront of. And I wonder, would that have happened if it had to go through the legislature? Yeah, that geographic pattern you mentioned is really dramatic. It's so much more common in the West. And you have, you have to think it has to do with the fact that the governments here are younger, maybe, and were able to be reshaped a little bit. I think so. And it's expensive to put something on the ballot. So you go to the ballot when you're not getting it from the legislature. I think we all know that the Colorado legislature was not going to legalize recreational marijuana on its own. But the voters did. Well, and, even the proposal that would let someone who has a terminal illness take medication to end their life. That's something that didn't get through the legislature, and then it passed as a statewide ballot initiative. Exactly. It's an interesting um, balance how you get these sort of forefront policies. Uh, It's interesting that you mentioned um, the uh, medical aid and dying uh, law that Colorado Mm -hmm. voters approved. Because, yeah, we've sat through really emotional hearings at the Capitol with bills that didn't go anywhere. And interestingly, this year, you've got kind of a parallel situation where state lawmakers have been, Democratic state lawmakers have been working for a long time on paid family leave, not getting it, not getting it, not getting it. This year, it's on the ballot. And that that's the initiative that would give people paid time off guaranteed pretty much from their jobs. Really, like, quite a progressive social change. And, you know, it makes me think that Colorado... In the past, our voters have given us kind of a progressive or a liberal image by passing things, like you said, legal cannabis. But it's a little more complicated than that. Well, think about Tabor. That's certainly not liberal, and that was passed by voters, and that's still shaping the the state enormously, which brings me to uh, a segue, which is, you know, we have this wide-ranging, diverse set of topics, but... So it's kind of hard to come up with overarching themes, but I think we can start with taxes and fiscal issues because several measures do tie into that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I called up Mandy Zock at the National Conference of State Legislatures, and she's kind of a specialist in these ballot initiatives. I had her look over Colorado's list of 11 measures, and I said, Mandy, what are some themes that you said that you see stand out? And here's what she told me. Oh, there are so many different big ideas. I would say tax and revenue is the biggest theme um, that's always on the ballot, not just in Colorado, but across the country. Um, The other big themes in Colorado where we're seeing multiple measures on the same topic are gambling and lotteries and elections. But we also will see abortion. um, We'll see the gray wolves measure. That's kind of an interesting outlier. Um, So it's a real smattering of topics for voters to get informed on this November. So like she said, a real smattering. But yeah, let's start with those taxes and financial measures. So let's run through them. We've got something that takes the uh, income tax level down for everybody, right? Yes, that's right. It's a slight income tax reduction. What's interesting about this is this proposal came about in response to an idea from the left to increase taxes. Which is um, not on the ballot. Right. They didn't end up getting enough signatures um, during the pandemic. Yeah, originally it was going to be forcing voters to choose. Do you want an income tax reduction or do you want an income tax hike? Uh, but <laughs> no, now we're going to see our voters going to be kind of tempted into this? Are they going to go for this thing that could deliver them a a slight savings? Or will they heed messages that the state can't afford to lose that revenue right now? We should say that that what uh, the progressive groups were trying to get on was a graduated income tax. Colorado currently has a flat income tax. The measure that did make it to the ballot lowers that by a, a fraction of a percent. 
the the progressive groups wanted to create a graduated one, tax higher income earners more. I think what is interesting is that generally voters don't like taxes. I think Mm -hmm. lowering everybody's taxes is usually probably a slam dunk, but we are in the midst of this terrible recession. We, You guys wrote a lot of stories this spring about how hard hit government services are. Yep. And I do wonder if more than usual that the pro-government funding side will be able to make the argument like, please don't take away another $100 million when your schools are, are suffering and the roads are yeah. suffering. And I wonder if the lack of a federal COVID relief package will play into that. Um, It it brings me to another tax-related issue that you two have covered and know a lot about, the Gallagher repeal, and try to boil that down. And then it seems like there's disagreement about whether this is actually a tax increase or not. Fundamental question for Gallagher repeal, ignoring all the complicated mechanics, is should the state give all homeowners and residential property owners an automatic property tax cut in 2021 that could really deny $700 million of funding to schools and county governments? Or should it repeal this big part of the Constitution and basically stabilize property tax rates? So it's not a tax increase per se from where we're at now, but it is saying we're going to we're going to forego property tax decreases that we would have gotten otherwise in the future. And that's confusing, I think, because people... What's confusing about that? (laughs) I mean, Gallagher is like higher math because it's all about what percentage of the statewide tax base is uh, comes from private residences versus uh, businesses and industry. It is it it gets tied up in Tabor. It's super confusing. But yeah, Andy, I think you boiled it down to what actually will affect people is will you see your residential property tax rate go down or will it stay the same going into the future? I think one thing that's really interesting about Gallagher is normally when we're talking about statewide measures and taxes, there's statewide taxes that fund statewide services. But Gallagher affects local money. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a really unbalanced effect. And this is the reason that there's bipartisan support to repeal a major tax protection in Colorado is that Gallagher really hurts the rural areas where their economies, their property values aren't doing so hot a lot more than it hurts your Denver's. And that's why this was referred to the ballot by the legislature. Bipartisan. And then we've got some things that aren't quite taxes. Uh, <laughs> voting on fees. Uh, it would require voter approval for fees above a certain dollar amount. And then the, the paid family leave measure, which would be a fee, but some people say it, they well, define that as a tax. I'll so. take on the obscure and hard to figure out how it affects your actual <laughs> life one, which is the voting on on fees and enterprises. This, like Gallagher, is one that is going to ask the voters to understand a lot more about how their state government works than I think an average person dealing with their their life uh, ever usually needs to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights says Coloradans have to vote on tax increases, yep. but it doesn't mention fees. And so the state legislature has found a, an end run where they create these enterprises. They're like a state-owned business, and they charge a fee. It's still money that you pay to the government, and in a lot of situations, you don't necessarily have a choice. But yeah, it's specialized. It's more it, narrowly focused. Yeah. And so what this taxes versus fees debate boils down to is actually people on both sides agree that the fees have gotten, you know, kind of twisted and and, uh, kind of almost really beyond what people anticipated them originally being used for. 
I feel obliged to say that the state Supreme Court has protected using fees this yes. way and does say that they are exempt from Tabor. But yes, a lot of people would say that it violates the spirit of Tabor. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and even if it doesn't violate it, it's it's made state finances a lot more complicated as lawmakers try to find a way around the restrictions of Tabor to progressives and liberals. That's a sign that we need to get rid of Tabor and make it easier to just fund things in a straightforward fashion through taxes the usual way. To conservatives, it means, well, you're disobeying what voters said with Tabor, so let's shut off that option as well. And in fact, what's kind of interesting is so you've got this measure that is urging the public to have more say over this form of financing in the state government at the same time that right near it on the ballot, you have paid family leave, which is set up in this exact way. Yeah, paid family leave, which we mentioned earlier, uh, is going to be funded, if it's approved, by a fee on your income which basically the government will be collecting... From every worker in the state. Unless they're exempted for various reasons, will be collecting 0.9% of your income, which I think a lot of people will think sounds just like a tax. Yeah. The only real difference is that it's dedicated for a single purpose of providing paid leave. You know, paid family leave is something Democrats have tried to pass for years. And, you know, it's one of those issues where Democrats say it's more important than ever right now in a pandemic, how, how critical it is to have this. And then you have conservatives saying it's more important than ever right now to not put more burdens on business. So, Megan, I know you've covered paid family leave. If this ballot initiative fails, what happens next? You know, Andy's reported on this, and it's the thing I keep hammering on in our conversations, is I don't think it goes anywhere. I mean, I think it's really hard to go back to the legislature and say Colorado voters wouldn't do it, but we should. Uh, You know, that said, I think you might see a different version. The governor uh, is behind the idea of just telling companies they have to offer this and then trying to create sort of an insurance marketplace for paid family leave. But the program that's been pushed by at the legislature to have a state-run kind of uh, California and I think six, seven other states have this model like that. And D.C. Yeah, and D.C. I think that model, if voters reject it, is, is dead in the water for a good long time. And that kind of speaks to the way that ballot initiatives really shake up politics. It's a gamble because, yeah, voters might say, that sounds great. I want my my friends and relatives to have that. Let's do it. And boom, you have a new big government program that you couldn't get for years otherwise. But if they don't... Similarly, I don't think you're going to hear a lot of conversation about single-payer health care in Colorado after 80% of Coloradans rejected Colorado care a couple of years ago. You know, when you put an idea like this on the ballot, you are giving lawmakers a very clear message one way or the other how the public feels about it. And I do think that does change the debate from that point. So um, hate to leave money behind, but there's a few more issues I want to touch on on the, the social side, like the effort to ban abortions after 22 weeks. You know, Benta, it's interesting. I know you and I have both covered past efforts uh, around uh, limiting abortion in Colorado, but they've been very different from this initiative. Right. I mean, it first happened back in 2008, and it was the personhood amendment. Colorado was the first state in the country to put that on the ballot. It defined personhood as beginning at the moment of conception. And so it gave fertilized human eggs the same constitutional rights as people. And so that would have had a lot of implications for things like congressional redistricting, HOV lanes. You know, there's a lot of legal Gosh, I didn't even think about those. I just remember like uh, in vitro fertilization and certain forms of contraception were also implicated. Yes. So, I mean, that's been defeated uh, several times in Colorado, but this is is much different. Yeah. So... 
Colorado is one of very few states that doesn't set a gestational limit on abortion. Um, it means that we have, a, I think, at least one provider here who does uh, abortions quite late into pregnancy. Those are very, very expensive. They're very rare. But on the other side, uh, people who are, are advocating for this say, look, theoretically, as it stands in Colorado, a woman with a healthy pregnancy can go to a doctor uh, before the, the child is born and and end it. Um, and so they want to see a, a limit on that 22 weeks is a point where you can start arguing about viability outside of the mm-hmm. woman's body. Uh, those very, very, very premature babies do have a chance of surviving. Um, so this, I think, for voters becomes a test of whether Colorado voters will accept any limits on abortion or uh, if this is a strongly enough uh, pro-abortion rights state that even sort of a, a mid-pregnancy ban uh, wouldn't be accepted. Well, and this is also a test of the new evolution of this anti-abortion movement, where it, in a lot of places, Roe versus Wade is accepted. It's not going to change. But you still see this whittling away through restrictions on where doctors can practice or uh, proposing something that is supposed to be more middle of the road. But I'll point out that you know opponents of this abortion measure also argue that it's it's not as moderate as it seems to them because they say, as correctly, there's no exception for rape. There's no exception for incest or fetal or abnormality. And, you know, the people who are uh, opposed to the measure also argue that um, sometimes women don't know until fairly late in pregnancy if they weren't trying to get pregnant that they are. Um, and and that access being more limited, it may take longer to, to get in for an abortion. But like you guys said, a lot of other states do have these restrictions already. So we would be not out front on this issue at all if it passes. You know, pregnancy is a very personal issue. And the the polls show that a lot of people who are comfortable with allowing abortions early in her pregnancy get less and less comfortable with it as that pregnancy progresses. I, I do wonder if the politics around this have changed uh, with the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and with mm. Roe v. Wade coming sort of back into the national conversation. I'm going to be really interested to see how the votes fall on this yeah, that's on election a, day. That's exactly what I was thinking with the Supreme Court, and especially if we have Amy Coney Barrett uh, have that vote before the election. How does that impact this initiative? So, Great question. Uh, another um, different issue that some people are passionate about that would require the state to reintroduce gray wolves on the western slope. How much do you think people are paying attention to this in the rural areas and that versus the urban corridor? I think the phrase some people are passionate about really sums it up. Either you care a lot or you are not even aware of it. I have to say that the thing that is burnt into my mind with this is much earlier this year, back when people actually gathered in small spaces together, I went to a <laughs> taping of the, the NPR politics podcast up in Boulder. And at the time, uh, backers of the Gray Wolf Reintroduction Initiative were gathering signatures, and there were a couple of them outside the theater, and, and they were coming up to people and saying, do you support reintroducing gray wolves on the western slope? Mm. And I thought, my gosh, people in Boulder signing a petition to reintroduce wolves on the western slope, like crystallizes one of the big divisions in our state, which is between the urban areas and the rural areas. Uh, I suspect this is a measure that will do really, really well on the urban core of the the front range where people see the the rural parts of Colorado as a place to recreate an open space, a wild space. And I know there's polling that says it's popular on the Western Slope, but mm-hmm. I, I do not 
I suspect that everywhere outside of the very urban areas, this will be voted against so heavily because people are much more tied into the agricultural economy and and have much more concern about wolves having an impact on on our very large livestock industry. Yep, they're majestic predators. And the question is, yeah, do you want to? Do majest- you focus on majestic or do you focus on predator? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Briefly, I want to touch on the National Popular Vote Compact, and that was something Democratic state lawmakers voted to join in 2019. So it basically would cancel out the Electoral College if enough states sign on. So the state's electors would then go to the winner of the National Popular Vote. That proposal is being challenged at the ballot, so voters could actually undo that law. I am such a nerd for this. Like, to go back to the beginning of our conversation, so this is actually... uh, the public using the referendum process where uh, a lot of laws in Colorado, unless the legislature specifically says we need this for the health, safety and well-being of the public, the public has the right to try and get that law recalled. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened after Democrats uh, voted to join the National Popular Vote Compact. A couple of local politicians, uh, Rose Puglisi, she's a county commissioner in Mesa County and the mayor of Monument, Colorado, they started this effort to get signatures to put it on the ballot. I think this one's just going to be a partisan dogfight. Like the last two presidents to win the Electoral College and not the popular vote were Republicans, George W. Bush and, and Donald Trump. Democrats know that the Electoral College increasingly stands in their way of, of getting a president. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, we still call our show purplish. Um, I think how that vote comes down might have an impact on the title of our show because it will really separate party affiliations. And, and to be clear, this measure, you know, the National Popular Vote Compact is is kind of a hypothetical thing until enough states sign on. Like Colorado's votes are going to continue to go toward whoever wins Colorado. Absolutely. Yeah. Until and unless a bunch of other states join on. But yeah, it's going to be, it's a real divisive issue that gets into this core question of um, just how much we want to stick with the Republic versus the democracy. And it also ties back into the wolf question that I think there's a real urban-rural divide on the Electoral College issue. Yeah, because the Electoral Um, College gives power to rural areas. So I I just want to throw in one thing that I read that I thought was really interesting was a a political science number cruncher looked at it. And his argument, the standard argument on the the Electoral College is that it disenfranchises larger states versus smaller ones. So Wyoming, Alaska, Hawaii have outsized influence. The argument that he said has been overlooked is it also disenfranchises high turnout states. Like if you think about it in Colorado, we have a really high turnout, but that doesn't give us any more mm. impact. We don't get more than our nine electors. Yes. <laughs> and True. so your individual vote in Colorado actually um, counts slightly less than a vote in a low imp- turnout state because mm. more people voting doesn't give you more say in the, the election. <laughs> I just thought that was an interesting one. Mm, and another point. way in which Colorado's vote is discounted on the national stage. Mm, interesting. We've talked a lot about so many of these individual measures. Any final thoughts on the overall ballot as it ties into politics or turnout or just even the overwhelming nature of so many initiatives on top of congressional races, Senate race, presidential race? I have a couple uh, you're shocked to hear. Um, (laughs) One is that I expect most of these to fail. Uh, 
I haven't. I should go and run the numbers, but my sense is in that Coloradans have fatigue with creating policy at the ballot, mm-hmm. um, and and so in recent years you've seen things that that we thought would pass fairly easily not pass. I mean, there was a tobacco tax just a couple of years ago that did not pass. Um, and so and that's usually something you can kind of count on more than other taxes. In other states, Colorado has been less willing on it, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it, there's been a lot of public discussion about how Tabor has made things difficult in the state and Amendment 23 and Gallagher um, that I do wonder if the public, unless it is a very clear policy, and that's why I think something like an income tax reduction, a 22-week abortion ban, like they're very clear and easy to mm. grasp. I tend to think that the more complicated an initiative and the more initiatives on the ballot, the less you're going to see something go through. That's an interesting point. And we'll have to see. I feel like they're, I don't know, anytime we do these ballot initiatives, a bunch of them, it's kind of like you're playing, what's the game, Plinko, where just the balls <laughs> bounce in random directions. I feel like we could easily see a situation where voters simultaneously decide to cut the income tax while raising the tobacco tax. That's one we didn't discuss, Proposition EE. Um, I, I just feel like it could end up going in some really random directions where things don't necessarily align cleanly. But voter fatigue, yeah, could be a real, a real issue. Where, uh, where do you see people landing on that, Benta? I've, I've definitely heard before, and I've seen this where when things are complicated, people are more likely to vote no because they just they don't want to make a change that's going to make things worse. So it's like, hmm. okay, let's just keep things the way they are because I'm not sure about this. So, I mean, we do have an engaged electorate, and I've, I've talked to plenty of voters who said they were going to go through the blue book. But also, I think the presidential race and the, the pandemic, and that takes the oxygen out of the room, and people have a lot going on. So I'll be really curious what does happen. You know, Do most of these fail, or do we see some odd pairings of things that pass? I will tell you, though, at least some people care. We always get a billion hits to the voter guide whenever we put it on our website. And one more thing I'll be looking out for, I have a theory that part of the reason that tax increases never pass in Colorado is because Tabor mandates that they're written in all caps and they lead with a really big number. And... With this paid leave initiative, it's not written like that because it's a fee. It's not all caps. It says a bunch of nice things about the initiative before it gets to the cost. Will that prove that voters are willing to approve these new costs if it's not written quite so harshly? Oh, I think there's so many interesting questions and whether or not the paid leave one in particular passes. Uh, One thing that I haven't seen them emphasize but I think is is – a selling point for it is that it doesn't go into the state constitution. So if you look at Colorado Care, which is the last time we had an initiative that tried to set up a really big, expensive, but also applies to everybody in the state measure, it Mm. went down hugely, but it went, it was was going to go into the state constitution, which is very, very hard to change. Mm. Um, You know, I'm a little surprised that I'm not hearing more from the paid leave folks. Look, this is a law change. If there are unintended consequences, the legislature has the power to go in and fix them. So that is a difference, but I don't know if if that difference will resonate with voters. I think it's probably more in the weeds to resonate with a lot of people. In the weeds will be on my tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> so let's wrap this up with the moment where we step back and, and look at something that really stood out to us recently and made us think, wait, what? Wait, what? Recently, I was talking to someone from Hickenlooper's campaign who offered uh, up his latest fundraising figures. Didn't tell me what the figure was, but said, hey, do we want to report on his quarterly fundraising numbers? And the deadline to report that to the public is October 15th. So I was thinking, okay, if they want this 
out earlier, it's probably good news for them. So I talked to Caitlin Kim, our reporter in Washington, D.C., and I asked her what she thought. would consider to be a pretty great fundraising number for him. And I think I said something like, well, he raised like five million last quarter. So if he like doubled that, that would be really, really good. What was your reaction when I called you back and told you? That mind blowing up emoji? That's what I thought of. That number was actually quadruple what he raised last quarter. So Hickelumper raised nearly $23 million. And I mean, that's a record for a candidate in a Senate race in Colorado. What so you even spent that on? A lot of TV ads that we will all be watching for the next three weeks. And his campaign has a little over $7 million cash in hand now for the, for the home stretch and maybe get more money in. We haven't heard yet on Republican Senator Cory Gardner's numbers, so we're still waiting to, to see that. We could have a wait what after the election if the race is close. Like, wait, what, you raised $23 million and you guys were within a couple points of each other? Like, I, I mean, one thing that's going to be really interesting to watch is whether that money moves the needle on this race. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's it for this week's episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Benta Berkland. And I'm Andrew Kenny. We will be back in your podcast feeds next week. With Caitlin Kim in the hosting chair instead of me, thankfully. Yeah. Sadly, Megan really will be in the background instead editing us. Until then, this is Purplish from CPR News. Purplish.